What does a coffee shop have to do with subscriptions and building a business? Maybe it's the monthly bean membership that they provide, although that's probably a little bit too obvious. Perhaps it's the source of energy that the beverage provides an intrepid, hungry founder, although that's pretty cliche. While these reasons have their meaning, the true value of the cafe metaphor comes down to one often overlooked thing, talking to your customer. Engaging with folks is not only inevitable, but it's also the secret that's hidden in plain sight to improving your business. And the depth of your relationship with your customers provides a better understanding of how you can actually serve them. People want to know which kind of coffee is best, if the album playing in the store is from a local band, even if there's a code or a key to the bathroom. At the very least, customer interaction is had during the purchasing process. It's reminiscent of a phrase we preach at ProfitWell, which is, the closer you get to the customer, the more you get. Just be sure to respect personal space, of course. While there is always direct customer interaction with a brick and mortar business, SaaS in the world of the internet is not always afforded the same liberty. So how do you get closer to a customer with only a digital connection? The answer lies with Des Trainer. As the co-founder of Intercom, he has helped build his company to lower this barrier to entry, revolutionizing the way that we talk to our prospects and customers online. It was his experience at a coffee shop in Dublin while building his first business exceptional that had a tremendous impact on the growth of his customer-centric career. Not everything went according to plan, though. And we'll learn more about that as well as his experience and what you can take away from his career coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we showcase the people in the trenches actually doing the work. On today's episode, Des Trainer covers his early roots in programming, the importance of talking to your customers, how to find the levers of growth for your business, the lessons he's learned when it comes to scaling, as well as alignment, and how a shared vision of the future is absolutely essential. Why this? Why tech? Why products? Why building a company over being a firefighter, being a doctor, purser, whatever you want to think Premier of? Premier League footballer, yeah. Um, Gaelic football? Or, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would have take any football I would have taken either, but the money's not great in Gaelic football. <laughs> um, I guess when I was like six, I made friends with an American guy called Chris, and he had an Amiga 500, and we used to play computer games on it all the time. And, uh, and that, that was cool. And like, I would have just gone on to become just a regular games junkie kid. But um, the Amiga 500 had this like, plug-in element called an action replay, which you could plug in and you could basically rewrite over the contents of the memory of the game. And the reason you want to do that is because when you lost a life in a computer game, you could freeze and just give yourself that life back. Or if, if there was like currency in the game, you could give yourself more of it. You could change any variable in the game that you're playing. That is, in a different way, like, you know, a type of programming. And I kind of fell in love with that concept. So then in 99, when I left school, like, colleges, universities, obviously free in Ireland. So going to university was the obvious thing to do. I really wanted to study computer science because uh, I was just always into it. And I think, like, I'd say from, like, September 99, which was, like, I was four weeks in the door of university, I was like, this is definitely what I want to do with my, my career. Four weeks before that, I was definitely dabbling. I didn't really know, but I felt this was the thing. But once I like 
written my first hello world and like, you know, how to for loop spit out an array or whatever. I was like, this is it. This is me. And, and it's, it's ironic really because I've never actually had a job writing code for all of the ambition. Like I, uh, I never, like I ended up working in design and usability and all yeah. this sort of stuff. And I never, I've never, like maybe one day I'll get back there, but you never know. How'd you meet uh, Owen, your co-founders? I actually met Owen the same day as I met my wife. In 2006, the Dublin tech scene was quite, quite, quite small. In fact, people who were on the internet in Dublin, there was like, it felt like there was like 20 of us, you know. Owen was one of them. He had a blog called Naive by Design, and he used to write about design stuff. And I had a blog called Usability something or other, and, uh, and I used to write about usability stuff. And he commented on my blog, and I commented on his blog, and then I saw he was organizing a coffee meetup called The Open Coffee Club. I don't know if you remember that. But it was held in the Morrison Hotel, which is now the Doubletree Hilton on the Keys. He said, like, anyone who, like, works on the internet uh, should come along and, uh, and we'll all have coffee. So I went along and I got to meet Owen for the first time. And there was a woman there who just started working for Microsoft. She had transferred over from Seattle called Martha, and I just met her as well. And I guess, like, fast forward whatever it is, 13 years, I'm now married to Martha and we have a kid. And I've been in Intercom for eight years with Owen. So it was a good morning's work. You kind of married both of them, let's be yeah, honest. In some yeah, sense, yeah, I had yeah. to drop out of a PhD to make this whole thing work, to be clear. Because <laughs> uh, that was the other thing. I, that was the other stopgap in my career after college. That was college. the divorce you had, basically. That was, that was my yeah, divorce, yeah. if you like. Yeah, yeah. What's the origin story? Because I think you had worked with Owen before. You worked right. with the founding team. Like, how did, yeah. how did this kind of come to be? So uh, we can go way back, if you like. The year is 2008, and myself, Owen, and uh, Kieran and David had a consultancy. We basically built, uh, designed and built web software for other people, and following the sort of 37 signals, as they were then called, uh, Mold, our real big ambition was to have a side product that would ultimately become the product. And that side product was called Exceptional. It was the first Ruby on Rails error tracking application Today, there's quite a few of these, but back then, it was a small market. We poured a lot of our spare errors that, we, you know, that consultancy afforded us into building this thing, and we found ourselves with thousands of customers having never really met a single customer. The problem there was that we were based in Dublin, and there was literally a street in San Francisco where we had more customers than we did in all of Ireland. That's how sort of disconnected we were from our customers. And to try and build that bridge, talking to your customers was really hard. Because the way we had to do it, if we wanted to talk to people who are actually using our product, we had to get a kind of an export out of the Rails database, clean that up, sync that against the PayPal subscriptions, because bear in mind, Stripe didn't exist. So you'd find out who was actually paying for the product and using the product. That was the two things we need to know. And then you'd import all that into like Campaign Monitor or SurveyMonkey, and you'd send out the questionnaire, which would be like, hi, we're working on Exceptional. What would you like us to work on? And then you might get like 500 replies into your email, which was not really that useful. The thing we kept going back to was like talking to your customers is the most important thing a web business can do. And it's incredibly hard, so no one does it. So instead, what you have is all these businesses kind of flapping around, trying shit to see if it works, rolling out features, rolling them back, just really throwing shit against the wall to see what sticks. Because there's this sort of chasm between the business and the customer. So at the time, we were working out of a coffee shop in Dublin called 3FE. Uh, it's, it's a pretty big popular chain these days, but we, we were actually uh, in the very, very first one. 3FE was run by a guy, is run by a guy called Colin Harmon, and it was just him at the time. And we were witnessing him grow a coffee brand, literally customer by customer. And all he was doing was welcoming people into his store, letting them try a few different coffees. When they liked one, he'd remember their name. 
And to this day, like if I walk into Tria Fee today, Colin will say skinny latte for Des, Americano for Owen, Americano for David, flat white for Kieran, which is the four of us. Because he just gave a shit. And he had the chance to give a shit because he got to see us in real life. Um, so we're working on exceptional, kind of like just really with this chasm between us and our customers, very jealous of Colin. We're thinking like, how do we make internet business personal? And that is, is and has always been from the very start. It's written on the walls of Intercom, make internet business personal. So one day we decided, inside Exceptional, wouldn't it be cool if we posted a little, a little announcement? Uh, so the, the logo for the Exceptional product was a star, and it sat in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. You can probably guess where this is going. And one day, out of that little star, a little speech bubble popped up, which said something like, hi, we're the team behind Exceptional. What would you like us to work on next? More likely, it was probably, sorry we were down last week, <laughs> or some stuff like that, right? And, um, and from there, uh, we got a shitload of replies. And I expected the replies to be, I'd love to be able to merge exceptions, I'd love to be able to like, mark an exception as a duplicate. I'd, you know. Actually, that wasn't the replies at all. The replies were primarily things like, whatever about exceptional, this thing is cool. How did you send me this message? And how do you know my name? And we're like, oh, well, that's because we used a communication tool that's integrated with our product. And the feedback continued to be versions of, this little thing is more valuable than this thing it sits inside of. So the realization there was, shit, everyone, every SaaS business out there, it wasn't just us because we were in Ireland. Everyone is divorced from their customers. And we thought, well, maybe we can bridge that gap with tools like this. So the next iterations we made to it were like, what if we could see who has seen the message and who hasn't yet? What if we could see who's online so that we can message them? What if we could message some but not all? What if the message fell back to being an email if the customer wasn't online? And very quickly we realized, this thing is a much bigger problem done exception handling. So we sold the exception handling tool. It went on to become a part of Rackspace. And we were then left with this lump of JavaScript. And we're like, shit, we better get this up and running because this is our thing now. So using the proceeds, we very we, we kind of scaled down. We turned off the consultancy entirely. We went all in on this idea that we should help people talk to their customers. And uh, we launched a private beta in July 1st of 2000 and I'm going to say 11. And then we came out of private beta January 27, 2012 at the 500 Startups Demo Day where we announced that we'd raised a million dollars. And from there, shit just took off basically. Like it's, it's, been, it's been quite a journey and like all of the benefits and challenges caused by hypergrowth have hit us at various different waves and they always, they always manage to represent themselves with new challenges. But, uh, but yeah, that's how it all got going. That's super interesting. And what I kind of find it kind of fascinating is exceptional. It wasn't a failure. Like it was, it was somewhat successful. And like yeah. I know, like there were some market dynamics there with like Airbrake and some of the others. Correct. At the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're from Boston, yeah, so you yeah, get yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. the deal. Yeah. It wasn't a failure. Uh, it absolutely wasn't. And I, and like without trying to congratulate or pat ourselves on the back too much, had we have started it in like 2012, 13, it would have been a bigger success. I think the market for exception tracking was like. In, when we started it, like Rails was still pretty uh, edgy and not mainstream. You can see today there's like Honey Badger, Bug Herd, all, all these other tools that do like start, started with that sort of idea, automatic bug tracking at their core. And they've gone on to do like millions of dollars in Aurora. So like, I do think the, um, like we, we made a good stab at execution, but also credit to ThoughtBot, like the, the Airbrake guys were good. You know, uh, Hoptoad, I think it was called at the time. Two of us chasing the market. The market was pretty small. I think, but like, uh, I think we both had an outcome that was positive, 
Um, but yeah, it was uh, the biggest difference in total addressable market between us, uh, between Exceptional and, say, Intercom was Intercom wasn't bound to any language, framework, or style. Uh, it was basically any business that has, does anything online, and that's like just immediately a much bigger market. And I know hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But like when you think about that moment when you have this thing, you know, exceptional that's like doing pretty well, it's growing, and then you have this like other, oh, this is interesting, right? And at the time, were you able to go, oh, this is a bigger market, all those types of things, or was it more? Hey, we're just not enamored with exceptional. Like, yeah. like what, what, what was kind of like the actual impetus for going? Okay, cool. Let's move on to this other thing. I think there was two things. One was like uh, uh, myself and own. Neither of us are developers, and neither of us woke up every day thinking about how we can make exception tracking more exciting or efficient or whatever. So there was there wasn't a lot of like uh, high energy. We what we what we liked about exceptional was that it afforded us a chance to run a SaaS business. Like maybe one day we could be Jason Freed. You know, that was the dream. Uh, still is. I think I, you've gone down a very different path than Jason Fritz, <laughs> so I don't know if you can go back. <laughs> I think you. I think you would agree, <laughs> but I do still look up to him for sure. That was a huge part of the impetus. Was shit. Here's a problem domain we understand. Let's move on to there versus a problem domain we don't really understand. That was definitely a big trigger. I also just the customer passion for Intercom was so much higher. I still remember talking to people. Do you know? You know probably know Garrett Demon from Sifter. Like I remember I had a Skype call with him. Like this is very early on and. He opened the Skype call with me and Owen. He was just like, holy shit, guys. I've spent all day talking to customers. I log on. I send out a message. I've got like seven pages of amazing feedback that I'm going to work on for the next year. This has been the most incredible thing I've ever used. And I remember Anthony Eden from DN Simples having similar conversations. I, I was just like, these were conversations I had never had with any customer about any product ever. And I was like, this thing is big. Own would, would have much more um, natural drive. He was just like, this thing, exceptional is done. We're doing this intercom thing. You know, for me, I was like, I, I was more persuaded by evidence. But like, I, I think no matter what way we looked at the two paths ahead, one of them was so much more obvious. Like it was a smoother path. There was no direct competition. There was no like hop toad or air break or whatever. We knew what we were doing. We knew what we were trying to do. It was just, it made so much sense to us. When you think about, because now you have some distance post 50, even post 100 at this point, like how do you think about, like what's the framework of post product market fit? And I know you've been talking about this like recently, like yeah. what do you think about, like what do you need to be thinking about post product market fit, which frankly is probably post one or post three, you know, level of Potentially, post yeah, yeah. I, I think like the other thing I'd say about product market fit, like I, it's, an, it's obviously it's a much abused term, but it makes for good talk titles. I think there's just many phases of it. Like, uh, you know, does, does like, does somebody want your product? Do a lot of people want your product? Do like tens of thousands of companies want your product? Can you reach them? You know, like there's like loads of different steps you have to go through. Once you're sure that you know the thing you are building is desired by a significantly large market, and significantly large meaning it has to like be roughly in line with your ambition, or potentially the projections you put in your fundraising deck, uh, which is also part of your ambition, right? So we have the market, we have the product. Now what? Well, that's where marketing and sales typically land, most importantly. Every, every startup is marketing from day one when they put a landing page live and when they show it on product front and ask their friends to tweet it and stuff like that. But when you get into the serious pieces of marketing, which is like finding levers of growth for your business versus just product marketing, which is just being really good at defining what your product is, most startups will screw this up in multiple ways. Usually what they start off is they start marketing outside the funnel and they're like, how can we grow an audience? Google AdWords, uh, Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads. Let's do all that. All right, we spent nine grand. What did we get? One customer. Okay, well, that's not a great LTV to CAC. The thing that it took us a while to, to learn is 
you actually want to start in reverse and you start with like, are all our customers happy? And if they are, what, what percentage of our trialists turn into customers? And let's talk to trialists and let's see what's going wrong there. And then what percentage of our signups turn into trialists? Let's talk to the signups who didn't. Let's see what's going wrong there. Then what percentage of our homepage visitors turn into signups? Let's talk to the ones who don't. Let's see what we're missing there. Maybe it's like social proof. Maybe it's that like they, you look like a startup and they want, a, they want a serious product. Maybe it's that they don't know what it does, whatever, but you have to start there. Then it's like, okay, now we're in a position to say, we think that we've done our best job such that if we can get somebody who's interested in pricing analysis or customer communication to come to our page, we think the system is pretty well oiled such that if we pour in a million dollars at Google AdWords, out should come some customers. Every startup, their natural inclination, no matter how many times I say this to them, is to start the other way around, which is, so Des, we're a project management tool and we've run an A-B test for project management and task management and you'll never believe, and I'm like, they both don't perform. Exactly, they both don't perform. And I'm like, of course they don't fucking perform. You know, so you kind of end up in this, in this loop where people are drawn to highly responsive, quick things where they can run loads of tests and convince themselves they're doing a good job. And they're not drawn to two hour long customer interviews about why project management is so important and what pieces really matter. And you need to kind of shift their focus to that versus to like, how do we just fill up the funnel? The chances are the funnel is actually the problem. And if your customers aren't like, if they're not signing up and turning into happy customers who are profitable with long-term uh, value, then the last thing you want is more customers. What you need is better customers. And you get that by starting at the end. It's kind of interesting, right? Because it, it not only has to do with like acquisition. I mean, you're basically describing like retention, you know, at, at the end of the day, right? Because there's so many com companies that they get one customer, 10 happy customers, maybe yeah, Hacker yeah. News, they bump yeah, yeah. up on the top. And then it's like just all growth all the time. Yeah, like yeah. no retention, no monetization yes. help. Is that a function of just human beings? Like we want the like short instant gratification. Is it a function of like the training of the market of what we're told yeah. works? Like how do you think about that? I think it's, it, it's, a, it's a result of a lot of things. I do think like some humans are quite like short-term wired. Uh, in fact, I would argue all humans are until they train themselves out of it in a sense, right? And, um, and like there's a discipline there that you need. And some of this comes from the idea that you have to believe you're going to be around in a year such that like these like and three years and five years or whatever, such that these short-term hacks start to like not become enough of a solution. So I think that one part of it is just a natural human piece. Another part of it is like no matter whether you're bootstrapped or heavily funded, you're always going to have some sort of target or you should always probably have some sort of target of where you want to get to. Uh, a lot of companies who are venture-backed Will, they always have their eye on the deck they want to share into, for the next round. So they kind of are happy to pursue any short-term tactic to get the numbers that they need for the next round. Rather than like sort of building a machine piece by piece that gets more powerful and feeds itself, they're instead pursuing a lot of like short-term tactics with no sort of accumulative compound value. And, uh, and that means that like, yeah, you'll, you'll go, go grow, 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 grow with no retention. Retention is the game in a sense. It's like the game isn't actually new technology or like cool marketing sites or like beautiful pages or like ripping off Stripe's latest product marketing or whatever. The game is people using your product in month seven, you know, not month one. And, uh, and I think a lot of people really try to fight against this, but it's like if, 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 I, if I started another company and I could copy anything from Intercom, it would be the retention, not the actual acquisition or the hyper growth or the virality or anything else. The retention is what you build off. And if you don't have it, you, you will have many impressive looking decks of growth, but at some point the music stops and you've got nowhere to sit, you know? In those early days, do you think you kind of 
because I think with exceptional, right, smaller market, all of a sudden intercom, you have this enormous market and like very quickly like grew like exceptionally, all puns intended, yes. like intensely. When you think about that particular like journey, was it just getting lightning in a bottle, you're first to market, there's some novelty? When, I'm sure that was a factor. When all of a sudden did like things start to go into even hyperdrive after that? And what kind of yeah. contributed to that? So like our revenue went from one to 50 in three years, uh, one million error to 50 million error in three years. And that whole period was like lightning in a bottle, but it was also like everything we did, like it just felt like anyone, they just needed to hear about Intercom. That was all we needed to do. And we were really, really boosted by the fact that everyone used Intercom you could see Intercom in their product. So people are like, what the hell is this thing? I, I need one of these. The fact that all SaaS companies use each other's software means that the thing just spread. And, uh, and we bumped into all the challenges you'd expect then. Like we, had, like, you know, we had scaling challenges. We had availability challenges. We, um, we started getting bigger customers who just wanted to use us in bigger ways. So like Intercom from the start, pretty much, nearly from the start, could send emails. I remember like we had a customer, like a pretty large B2C customer, trying to send like 12 million emails every, like, every hour or something like that. And we're like, right, you should maybe not be using Intercom. But, but, but you can also say, or we need to get to a place where you can definitely use Intercom. So there's so much complexity caused by hypergrowth. Hyper you're trying to hire, you're trying to invest in things that your customers don't see, which is future potential scalability. You're trying to fight off all the feature requests from everyone who's like, I want to use this for absolutely everything and here's all the ten things I want. And like, you're trying to invest in all of these fronts while not making any mistakes and you feel this immense sense of urgency. So like every hour of the day matters. The temptation to overwork is absolutely there. And like working hard is a great thing and all that, but I do think your decision-making capacity reduces after like, pick your error, error at 9, 10, 11, 12 or whatever, you will like you will get some stuff wrong and like and pretty much all fronts, none of them are particularly forgiving of a bad like a bad hire or a bad scalability choice or a bad what a bad feature choice. They're all pretty punishing. So uh, there was definitely like the um, as we hit the sort of hyper growth, we definitely like found all sorts of new problems and, and like and all sorts of new challenges. Would you say the work because clearly going to one fifty in three years hit product market fit, there's no stupid survey we need to send to like rationalize that, right? Like, Correct, yeah. If you think about the work prior to 50 million and the work after 50 million, yeah. given the lightning in the bottle effect, mm -hmm. after 50 million, a lot of fast followers, then you started getting heavy funded followers, yep. and all the like real growth of not going after just the folks who like hadn't heard of you. Yeah. Like, which work was harder, do you think? The scaling keeping yeah. up, or now you have to be a lot more thoughtful? I would say post- 50, it's been calmer, but of higher importance in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we're like, you know, there's like 600 people now, depending on intercom. Like, you know, there's a lot of money in the company, etc. You know, uh, there's a lot to protect. Uh, it's calmer because, you know, we can kind of like, you know, I, I'm not scratching my head wondering, will the company still be here next year, right? For the first few years, you're, you're always sort of thinking, well, you know, maybe, you know, who knows, this might take off. Even going one to 50, you're still thinking uh, about I'd say though? there's definitely a point where you're like, right, this thing's not going away, as in like we can definitely like scale down costs and survive. And then at some point you're like, no, no, this thing's ready to go. Let's take off. There's like a naivety as well. Like it was our first big company and our only big company. So none of us were walking around saying, hey, we've seen all this shit before. Like it was, none of us had, you know. The confidence uh, was probably late to the party uh, because we didn't know what things looked like. Every now and then we talked to somebody who'd be like, yeah, no, I'm telling you, you're on a breakout trajectory, you know. And we're like, really? It feels like we've got so much shit wrong. Um, so, so that was a challenge. But um, I think, I don't know, I'd say post 50, there's a lot more... Uh, I guess 
uh, it's it's easier to model, easier to control and understand, but maybe harder to directly influence with one person's effort. Uh, whereas in the sort of one to fifty fra the framing, it was probably like it still felt like if I had to go and hire like a head of marketing, that like uh, I could do a really good job on that. That would have a trajectory defining outcome, if you know what I mean. Whereas I, I feel like uh, now it's much more about the highest level strategic decision. Like one of the things. We, what we do every year is kind of reevaluate our product strategy and work out what areas do we need to reinvest in across, say, sales, marketing, support, et cetera. Now you realize, well, these decisions involve like 20 people and they play out over a couple of years and they are hugely important, but there's never that same spark of like, today is the day that everything matters, you know? Like, uh, like so even like launching a product these days is like, it's a huge achievement for the team that worked on it. But like uh, you know, I think our, our, we're so much more rigorous about like about like what we do these days. That we're like, we're pretty sure it's going to resonate. We've run an extensive beta. Customer feedback's really positive. Whereas like I would say like seven years ago, it was like let's see what happens. <laughs> you know, like uh, did you guys ever have the like we're never going to have salespeople mindset? No, I, I I we like we certainly observed a lot of our peers uh, having that mindset. And like and I would say like. We have always admired admired companies like Atlassian or whatever, like who have forward deployed customer engineers or whatever the, the nomenclature they use is. I don't think we ever felt that. Self-serve has always been a huge channel for us, but I think I, I have enjoyed learning how sales works. We've made a lot of great strides in the last couple of years uh, in terms of really just kind of making sure that we understand, hey, it turns out like when a company like Microsoft wants to buy software like Intercom, they actually want to talk to somebody about that. They don't just sign up and install it in GitHub. It's good to realize that you know sales is actually a really positive force. And when it was explained to me by our, our current SVP of sales, LB, she's phenomenal. She, her, her argument to me was like, she's like, we're helping customers buy. Like they're, they're, it's inbound sales, inside sales. They're contacting us saying, I'd like to buy this product, but I don't know how to use it or get the most value or how to set it up or how do I have a success, successful trial. She's like, we can push them in a self-serve funnel, but they're going to fail. Or we can help them. Which would you rather? And like, then you kind of realize good sales is one of the best make internet business personal things we could do. So like, I would say we were never dogmatic about it, but it took, we had a, a shitload to learn. Yeah. When you think about 600 people, because that's a mindset, if we assume that instant gratification is like a default and needs to be trained, obviously you're hiring execs and maybe you can vet very heavily for those folks. But there's going to be folks, entry level, et cetera, that kind of come in that maybe they're not as trained as well. So how do you think about the culture around that? Yeah, I, I think you have to, like alignment is something we think about a lot. I've often said internally, like misaligned people, misaligned people. So if you have like a short term, like let's say head of product, because that's me and like, I criticize myself. But like if I'm short, short term thinking and I'm only caring about the next feature or the next quarter, then for sure... I'm going to hire people like that or I'm going to train the people I have to be like that too and they're going to train the people who they have and before you know you have a product org that is obsessed with like putting out new things because they get this stimuli of zero to one but they don't actually care about the fact that no one's using last week's features anymore they're only concerned about this week's features so alignment is, is absolutely key you, but like it all flows in my opinion like you have a mission you have a vision you have a strategy so like you have basically what are you trying to do what's the world look like when you do it and how are you going to do it and you have to align the whole company from honestly, like uh, from like the business analyst through to the sales rep, through to the product manager, through to the CEO. They all need to be on the same page about those things. And then where you can allow for deviation is timeframes uh, beyond that. So like, so sales is obviously a quarterly thing. Product, is, product doesn't have to be, but it can be. 
uh, and like financial planning has to be like maybe a multi-year thing because you don't want to run out of money, you know. Uh, and like that's okay, but if there's any differentiation in what people believe is the strategy or the mission or the vision, you're gonna end up with people on different pages. And um, and like from our point of view, there's no point in me having a like three-year product vision that doesn't throw out any new value for the first two and a half years if our sales team are trying to plan quotas for the end of this year. How quickly do you find people who aren't aligned for any reason? Presumably if you find yeah. them relatively quickly, like how have you structured a 600 person company for being able to do that? There's two ways I think about misalignment. One is like behavior, uh, which is like generally speaking, is the person like a good, a good person within your culture and within your own cultural values? And, uh, and the nice thing about that is generally speaking, um, people who aren't, they, they, they tend to not to be able to hide it. Most of the time, assholes tend to like self-identify and make it really clear they're an asshole. Like they, they don't intend to, but you're sitting in a meeting and they say something you're like, "Oh, I didn't realize that person's an asshole." Huh. You know, like is they're super rude to somebody or whatever, like too blunt, too like direct, share something in the wrong context, whatever. And uh, so that type of misalignment's really easy. The stuff that's uh, subtle is like partial alignment. Uh, like so, total misalignment's easy. Partial alignment is actually the challenge. Uh, and it's like when they're mostly on the same page, but they really, really, really believe in one thing that you don't, which is like that growth's more important than retention or whatever. Nine out of 10 things they say are like, you're nodding along going, this person's smart. Uh, the way you identify it is ultimately like, you have to ask people, I mean, in general, like you rely on your, like your senior leadership and then your leadership and then your director level and your senior manager level. Most of the time, if you ask people to, like, to map out what, they're gonna, what activities they're gonna pursue in, in, across the year, where they wanna get to at the end of that year, what, what are the key goals of their function and what are the priorities? Like what are the things they can't fail on versus what are the things that they're gonna shoot for but are ultimately nice to have? You should be able to identify the misalignment there. So if, if I hire you to run like growth for us and you tell me that, like your number one goal is like find the right shade of blue for our sign up button, like you wouldn't have said that in the interview, but if I asked you to write out a one-year plan and, and this is clearly the big rock that you're trying to lift, I'm like, right, we're definitely on the same page here. Now that doesn't mean therefore Des can't work with Patrick. It just means there's clearly context I have that you don't. And whenever I see misalignment, that's what I try to do. I'm like, I obviously, I'm obviously aware of some principle or some fact that Intercom holds that you don't yet have. I'm gonna share that with you. And if you change, great. And if you don't, yeah. then we're misaligned. But that, doesn't that get you down an interesting path, right? Where how many strikes do you give someone, right? You're, you're giving me the most charitable interpretation and you're saying, oh, there must be some context that Patrick doesn't have. Yeah, yeah. How many times do you do that? And, and maybe if it's, you know, if it's the asshole thing, like maybe yeah, yeah. you can have a one strike yeah, yeah, yeah. or two strike yeah, yeah. kind of policy. If it's the, I don't see the shade of blue problem. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a point where you have to obviously go, this just isn't gonna work. We don't see the world similarly. Yeah. We're just not aligned. But like, how do you even measure that? It also depends in some sense on where somebody is in their career. Because you could have somebody who's had a really successful career pursuing the shades. And like, and I don't mean to be so dismissive. I mean, what I'm really talking about is conversion rate optimization. And like in a B2C st startup, that's exactly what you need to be focusing on. And I totally get it. If somebody has a track record of being successful deploying a strategy that you think is at odds with you, then I think you actually, there's not much point in like, unless they actually have expressed a desire to change, you kind of have to have an honest conversation around, hey, like, look, I'm pretty sure you're absolutely excellent at this. And I'm pretty sure Intercom doesn't need it. So I don't think we should try and meet halfway here. I think you can have an excellent career elsewhere. And I think we can go, go on our way and we'll see how we turn out. And at times, like I have to say, like one of the things I spoke about earlier today was this idea of dogma. Like at times, sometimes the company does need to grow up. Like if you hire a senior exec, it's because you believe they know things about the world that you don't. And sometimes you need to grow up. Like we had to learn a lot about how marketing worked and how sales worked. Uh, and we have to sometimes adapt to, to like the, the new knowledge we have. Otherwise, you're being dogmatic. But I do think if you, know you're, if you know that you're at odds with somebody, 
you just are like, as in we, we see totally different things about this problem. Uh, and no matter how much information I give you, you're retreating to your, to the thing you believe and I'm retreating to the thing I believe. Then it's just, it's not going to work. It's going to be a dysfunctional relationship at best, you know. You know, you need to kind of all be on, you, know, you have some shared vision of the future is essential. Otherwise, it all goes wrong. Special thanks to Des Trainer for sharing just some insanely stellar advice. Let us know which tool you're adding to the toolkit in your company. In this episode, we talked about the importance of talking to your customers, finding the levers of growth for your business, key takeaways from going from startup to scale up, as well as a bunch of lessons on alignment. Thanks for watching and make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.